Welcome to the podcast of Okotoks Calvary Fellowship. Please enjoy as Pastor John opens up the word. Well, as we've been going through the book of 1 John, the Apostle John has been stressing the need for us to have an authentic relationship with God. Not a superficial or phony relationship, but one that is genuine. And this morning we're going to continue on this theme of relationship. However, our focus is now going to be on a a direct attack that we have on our relationship with God. You and I know that just as much as our human relationships come under attack from time to time and the pressures or conflicts come upon us that can drive us apart, this is also true of our relationship with God. There are things that can come in that can distance us from God and that can make for a poor relationship with God. And one of those things is what John is going to speak to us of this morning, and that's the problem of worldliness. So I've entitled this message, Worldliness, an Attack on Relationship. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to begin at verse 15. Now we... We'll only look at three verses this morning, but we could easily camp out here for a number of weeks. Well, John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world and the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Now John's already said previously in this letter that if we walk in sin and darkness and claim to be in fellowship with God, we are liars. 1 John 1.6 tells us, and I know that that sounds kind of harsh, But John's just telling us the raw truth here. If you think you are walking in fellowship with the Lord and you're still walking or practicing sin, well, there's an obvious problem there, right? Well, now John's going to point out a specific area of sin which especially threatens our fellowship with God, and that's the sin of worldliness. Or as John calls it in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, some of you are going to immediately react to that statement. Okay, John, what is so bad about loving the world? I mean, God has given us this beautiful planet Earth. You go to Banff, you see the beautiful Rocky Mountains, all the trees soon to be, you know, covered with snow, and it's just beautiful. Or you travel to your favorite holiday destination, maybe to a nice beach, and God made this wonderful world. He called it good. 
What's wrong with loving the world that God has given to us? My friends, please don't get distracted by this. This is not what John means by the world. He doesn't mean planet Earth or the created world. But others of you might say, John, I thought we were supposed to love the world. We're supposed to love humanity. We see billions of people all over this globe. This great mass of humanity. I thought we were supposed to love the world. After all, doesn't John 3.16 tell us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son? And if God loves the world, how come John tells us not to love the world? Because he's not referring to the physical world that we live in, planet Earth. John's referring to what we will sometimes call that world system. The concepts, the thinking, the philosophy of the world as opposed to the concepts, the thinking, and the philosophy of heaven. You see, the world in the sense that John refers to it here is the community of sinful humanity which is united in rebellion against God. My friends, men and women in community don't generally get together and think about how they can glorify God, do they? They think about organizing things. They think about doing things and creating things and making progress. They think about having a wonderful society, but they don't think about how they can glorify God and they don't think about how they can do His will on earth as it is in heaven. And it's this difference between heaven and earth, this difference between worldly thinking and godly thinking, and John tells us not to love the world's way of doing things. You know, one of the very first examples that we have of this idea of the world in the Bible will really help us to understand this point. And I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but you might want to read this for yourself later on. It's in Genesis chapter 11, and it's the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, most of you have heard of this story at some point in time in your life. It speaks of human society united in its rebellion against God. So let me stage it for you. This happens after the flood. Mankind is beginning to multiply across the face of the earth again. And when Noah and his sons come off the ark, God told mankind to disperse over the entire globe. But they decided... They didn't want to. They decided they were going to all congregate in the plain of Shiner. They wanted their own society, their own culture. So the first thing they did was obey God's direct command. God tells them to disperse and they say no. And the Bible tells us that there was a leader in this world at this time, a man by the name of Nimrod. 
And he was the first leader of a worldwide political conspiracy against God. <coughs> Leaning people into discovering their own potential instead of glorifying God. So they decided to build this tower into the heavens. And when you read it, you're kind of mystified. I mean, who would be foolish enough to think that they could be, build a tower all the way into heaven? Because first of all, is it even possible to build a tower that, you know, that reaches that far? And second of all, if you were to attempt that, why would you start in the plains? Why wouldn't you start on a mountain and have a two or three thousand foot head start? But that really wasn't the point of this tower. You need to understand something in those days. There was a real mistrust of God's word and his promises. And they built this tower because they did not trust God. And I can demonstrate that very simply. Have you ever looked at the materials that they actually used to build this tower? They used especially strong bricks. And then they used a special mortar or sealant made with tar. And this tar made it waterproof. Now why would you need a waterproof tower? Now I want you to think for a moment. Why would they want it to be waterproof? Because they were afraid that God would flood the earth again. And you might say, but wait. God promised he would never do that again. He even gave the sign of the rainbow in the sky to seal that promise. But the world said, God, we don't believe you. We don't believe your word. Friends, this is the attitude of this world. This story shows us that this collective consciousness of humanity, even though it might be able to achieve impressive things, and you can look at this as a great human accomplishment. I mean, it was an engineering marvel. They all worked together. <laughs> that in itself is a miracle. <clears throat> but they were organized. They were united. But it was united in opposition to God. They ignored God's command. They didn't trust in His Word. And when you do those things, you are opposing God. And the Tower of Babel shows us something fundamental about the world's system, the world's progress, the world's technology, the world's government, the world's organization. Listen, it can make you better off, but it can't make us better. We live in a very sophisticated, well-organized, and very functioning world. Friends, we have it so easy compared to three or four hundred years ago. It's an embarrassment of riches. 
We're so much better off. But are we better? I don't believe so. We're not better as people. And this is what often makes the world so attractive to me. Maybe to you as well. I know that many times in my own heart, I would much rather be better off than better. (laughs) In fact, I'd prefer it. I'd rather be more a more comfortable person than a more godly person. You could say that I have a PhD in personal comfort. And the world is an expert at showing me how to be more comfortable. But one last thing before we move on. As impressive as the world system appeared to be here, just when they thought that they were winning out over God, what happened? One moment they're working unified together, making tremendous progress. The next minute they can't even understand each other. God scrambled their speech. So even though it may appear that the world system is winning, it will never win out over God's plans and purposes. You want to make sure you know what side you're on. But look back at verse 15 for a moment. It says, Do not love the world. The world wants your love. The world wants your heart. And the world will do whatever it can to seduce you. Have you ever noticed how easy it is for us to love the world? Why is that? Because these rewards that the world can give you, there are real significant rewards that, they, that can be gained from loving the world, right? Status, success, honor, prestige, comfort, wealth. The world knows how to reward its lovers. But at the same time, there's a real tragedy connected with all of it because the best rewards that the world can give you are all temporary. You only have them while you're here on earth. Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? This is why it's so important for us not to be seduced by the short-term gain here. But we should be striving towards the things that are eternal. And so John tells us in verse 15 not to love the philosophy of the world or its way of thinking. But John continues in this verse with something a bit more severe. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now that thought goes a step beyond. It's warning against loving the material things that characterize the world system. 
You know, the world knows how to buy our love, doesn't it? Cars, homes, gadgets, all the status that goes with it. It can really make our hearts feel at home and at ease in the world. And we may not be overly materialistic, but there's always some soft spot somewhere. I know for me, I'm not overly taken by big fancy cars, houses, or jewelry. And you can definitely tell I am not a fashionista. But I probably could use a few more guitars or electronic gadgets. I can't really say that I need them. Though I could sure try to make a case for it. And I do from time to time. But the point is, we really need to keep a light touch on everything in the world. When John says, do not love the world or the things in the world, he's saying we get too attached to things in the world. When we get too comfortable here instead of our real home, which is in heaven. And there's a simple reason for this. Please notice in verse 15 again. <coughs> this is powerful. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now watch this. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Whoa. That's heavy, isn't it? Like That's just like hitting right between the eyes. If one claims to love God and yet loves the world, there's something wrong with his claim to love God. Now, my friends, Christians through the centuries have dealt with this fact in different ways. Once upon a time, if you wanted to forsake the world and serve God, you left home and you went to some secluded monastery somewhere. I'm leaving the stain of this world and I'm just living for Jesus. But there were a couple of problems with that idea. Number one, the moment you arrive at that monastery, you've brought the world in with you. And second of all, Jesus never wanted to remove us from the world. When Jesus prayed his priestly prayer for, for his disciples and for us in John 17, he prayed that we would be in the world, but not of the world. And maybe it would be easier for us to not be worldly if we lived in a monastery. But that wouldn't fulfill the heart of Jesus. Jesus wants us to impact people in our society. He gave us a harder job to be in the world and not of the world. And that's really our great need today. Think of it this way. A great ship can be in the water and yet not have the water in it. But if the ship isn't in the water, it's not a ship at all. 
What good is it? It's in dry dock. But if the water is in the ship, then it's a sinking ship. And that's no good at all. So we need to be in the world, but not have the world in us. But I'm afraid to say as we look at the church today, sadly, it often resembles the sinking ship. It's pretty worldly, isn't it? The way we think, the customs we adopt, the compromising of biblical principles and practices, the measures we use for success and goodness in the church, they're more aligned with the world's ideals than the heart of Jesus. Well, John is now going to characterize more of what the world is all about. Let's look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So John highlights these three lusts or desires for us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life first two are pretty straightforward but the idea behind the pride of life is the desire for status to impress others by outward appearances even if it's a deceptive appearance and each one of these things has a powerful way to draw us in and i think that when john is listing these three things he's referring to the first time that somebody succumbed to temptation and if you look in genesis chapter 3 verse 6 it tells us that when eve was in the garden of eden right before she took the forbidden fruit what did she do first she looked at the tree she looked at the fruit and saw that the tree was good for food in other words she looked at it and said man that's gonna taste good that's going to satisfy this craving I have. So she went after it in the lust of the flesh. And before she took up the forbidden fruit, it says that she saw the fruit was pleasant to the eye. She said, this is the most beautiful fruit I've ever seen in my life. All the other trees, the fruit on them, it just looks junky. It looks lousy. I don't want to eat that stuff. This is the good stuff. It looks so pretty. It looks so aesthetically pleasing. And so she went after it with the lust of the eyes. And then it tells us that before Eve took of the forbidden fruit, she considered it. She saw that it was desirable to make one wise. And how smart that would make her. And how her husband would admire her. Or, or maybe she'd even be smarter than Adam. And so she went after it with the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. They all work together to entice us from godliness and towards worldliness. Do you know one of the best places to see the spirit of the world in operation 
Just watch television commercials. One of the most powerful illustrations I can use of this are beer commercials. You've got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life right there. First of all, they try to sell you beer because it tastes so great. It's going to satisfy that desire of your flesh to drink beer, so they're appearing to your lust of the flesh. Then they appeal to the lust of your eyes. They put all these beautiful men and women in front of you. All of them look just perfect. They're selling that sex appeal. You never see one person in these commercials who isn't attractive, do you? And you never see them drunk and disorderly or passed out in a corner. Because that's not what they want to portray here. They're trying to lure you and trap you with the lust of the eyes. And thirdly, then you put all these beautiful people into these amazing settings and they're all driving these expensive cars and they're wearing you know, nice clothes and they're living in nice houses. It's party central. All your friends are here enjoying life and our beer and if you drink this beer, you can be just like these happy people. All these entrapments can be yours. You can be a winner too. So they go after you with the pride of life. And it's easy for us to look at an exaggerated example like this and laugh it off. But friends, I want you to stop and soberly consider this for a moment. Why do they put commercials like this on television? Do you know why? Because they work. Because we're drawn to those very things. Now, I've, friends, I don't know if we are drawn by it or not. If there's something in a response to the lust of the eyes or the pride of life. But if there isn't, then why would God have to say we shouldn't live after those things? And there's a very simple reason and explanation for it in verse 16. Did you notice it? It says, all those for, or aforementioned things are not of the Father, but of this world. So the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. They're not of the Father, but of this world. That's why God told us not to live after worldly things, because they're of the world, they're not of God the Father. But God knows that we have a fleshly body, bodily nature that, we have physical needs that feel good when they're satisfied. But it's not God's nature to influence us by the lust of the flesh. God knows that we have eyes and that appearance means a lot to us. And he made a beautiful world to please us. But God always looks beyond the outward appearance. And it is not in the nature of God to influence us through the lust of the eyes. 
And God knows that we have emotional and psychological needs for us to be wanted and to accomplish things. He made us this way, but my friends, it's not God's nature to influence us by the pride of life. And I think we really rarely appreciate or understand just how much the world has dominated our thinking. We usually believe that we think much more biblically than we really do. But friends, I want to challenge you, and I hope the Holy Spirit of God will challenge your heart right now as I'm speaking, for you to examine your mind and your heart to see how worldly your way of thinking might be. And I don't say this in any way to condemn you. I say this because we need to move from the place where our thinking is worldly and move to a place where our thinking is biblical, where it's godly, where it's the kind of thinking from heaven. And we need to think about what is our standard of success? Is it worldly? Is it godly? I want you to think about the Apostle Paul for a moment and answer me this. By worldly standards, was Paul a success or a failure? He's a failure. Any guy who dies in prison at the end of his days, alone, friendless in prison, with an unsure legacy behind him by worldly standards of success, he's a failure. But by heavenly standards, Paul was a success. So what about your life? Maybe you've come here this morning and you're very discouraged. Because let's be honest, by worldly st standards of success, you're a failure. You just don't measure up. You're not wealthy enough. You're not comfortable enough. You're not influential enough. You're not popular enough. My friends, can I just ask you to put all of that out of your mind for just a minute? And I want you to measure yourself according to the standard of heaven. Are you a success in the eyes of heaven? And don't answer that question automatically, yes. Because maybe you're not a success in the eyes of heaven. Maybe your priorities are such that you're concerned about being a success in the eyes of the world that you fail to measure, measure the, the eyes of success in heaven. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing for us to get to heaven and stand before God and he says, yes, I see all that you've accomplished on earth. But that's not what I had for you to do. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So when our work <coughs> is tried before the righteous fire of God, will they hold up like gold? 
Or will it be totally consumed like hay and stubble? If the works are of God, they will endure. If the works are of the world, they will be consumed. Here's another one. How about the standard of what makes a person of the opposite sex appealing? Is it a worldly standard or is it a godly standard? Are we truly looking for a godly or man or woman of character? Someone who loves the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or are we looking for the outward appearance? Let me assure you of something. The outward appearance will fade. Just ask my wife. I used to be very handsome. Now, not so much. But seriously, we've got to get real on this. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And in every aspect of our lives, we need to be asking ourselves the question, is this decision based on a worldly standard or on a godly or heavenly standard? Well, finally, let's look at verse 17. John's going to speak about the foolishness of worldliness. And friends, I just want to tell you that in my life and in yours, to whatever extent we're thinking and living worldly, we are fools. And I say that to myself just as much as any of you. Because look at verse 17. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. My friends, just as we saw in the example of the Tower of Babel, the world never wins out against God, even though by some appearances it does. But John says plainly here in verse 17 and look at it for yourself he says the world is passing away that's a fact and we must live our lives and think our thoughts with the awareness of that fact you know it makes me think a lot about lot in the old testament genesis 13 14 19 his life really shows the folly of worldliness Lot wanted to be a financial success. So he just lived kind of in the direction uh, or near those who were ungodly. But before long, he was living among the ungodly in the city of Sodom. And he was even like a city councilor there. And we can think of all the rationalizations, all the excuses. Well, I can be such a great influence here or there but the fact was lot was not a great influence he did not influence a single person to godliness and because of his own worldliness because of his own compromise he couldn't take a strong stand for righteousness to anybody else he had worldly status, worldly influence, worldly wealth, worldly comfort, yet it was taken away from him in a moment. When the judgment of God came upon Sodom and Gomorrah, 
Lot put all his eggs in the wrong basket. And he was burned by the fact that the world is passing away. My friends, I'm talking to you this morning and I'm going to ask you to make investments. I don't want you to spend your time. I want you to invest your time. I'm not asking you to spend your resources. I want you to invest your resources. Invest in secure things. Invest in eternity. Notice what it says here at the end of verse 17. He who does the will of God abides forever. My friends, right now you're in contact with three eternal things. Number one is the Holy Spirit. He's present here among us. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if your heart has been born again by the Spirit of God, that Holy Spirit indwells you. He's right here, right now. That's eternal. The second thing that you have is the Bible, God's Word. The words in this book that you have in your hands, the Bible says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So God's word is eternal. And there's one other thing around you that's eternal. One other thing that is really worthy of of your investment. God, His Word, and the people around you. Did you know that they're eternal too? They're going to last forever. And that's what God wants us to invest ourselves in and to put our focus on. Not this world or the things of this world. And let's pray now and ask him to do that exact work amongst us this morning. Father, we have so many pressures of things that are threatening to get inside our boat and cause us to sink. Lord, we focus on things that are not eternal, that are temporary. And they bind us to this world. But Lord, we have your word, we have your spirit, and we have your people. Things that we can invest in for eternity. The lives of people matter. There's a world outside our doors here who does not know you. And they're going to either spend their eternity with you in heaven or apart from you in hell. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit and your word will be working in us to such an extent to understand the investment we need to be making because our time is short. And so, Lord, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit fire will just be purging out the wood, the hay, and the stubble. That you would be refining us right now, that we would come out as pure gold. And so, Lord, I just thank you 
for your word. I thank you for this word this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.